They took many careful searching steps over the rocky seabed to get past the sandbar and into deeper waters. She let her fingers drag behind her as she went, feeling the slow drop in temperature as the floor fell away. She hung there for a long time, legs kicking lazily beneath her, holding her head just barely above the lapping waves. The buoys marking safety's perimeter were far behind, barnacle crusted and ignored. The pandemic had left the park armed with a skeleton crew and staggered shifts, and no one sat in the peeling white lifeguard chairs dotting the beach. She wasn't worried. The Long Island Sound was rife with occasional algae blooms and little else of note. She was a strong swimmer, her thighs, her thigh muscles heavy after the past two months spent trading water and roaming the nearby trails aimlessly. Working remotely had left her feeling perpetually trapped. Even with the cloud-tufted sky hung unending above her, she felt the unease working tendrils through her. She took a gasping gulp of air and expelled it quickly, letting herself sink slowly to the bottom with eyes screwed tightly shut. The quiet was a welcome reprieve. The only sounds, the distant ticking of the constantly moving sand and the unsteady pound of her pulse beating in her ears. She let her mouth hang open, enjoying the gentle brush of bubbles slipping past her lips, wobbling against the tip of her round nose as they ventured upwards. There was an unopened pair of cheap goggles in the backseat of her car, the lenses encased in filmy plastic. She longed for them now, to look out across the seabed and see what grew past the shoreline. The sharp bite of salt at the corners of her eyes kept them closed tight, leaving her blind and mostly deaf. A flounder wriggled suddenly beneath her thigh, its slick skin rippling, then quickly sliding unnervingly away. The yelp of surprise choked her, letting water in past her barricade of bubbles. She kicked off the floor, pushing breathlessly up, 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 her lungs aching and water gagging her. She sputtered as she broke the surface, tears melding seamlessly with salt water slicking down her cheeks. Coughing wetly, she hugged her stomach as she heaved, her legs still kicking slowly to hold her up. The panic took a long time to release. Seeping adrenaline slowly left her limp-limbed and tired. Something subtle brushed her outstretched fingers as they dangled near the surface. She opened her eyes, thinking it must be a wayward clump of seaweed. The noonday sun bleached everything a painful white, and she had to squint to see. It wasn't clear at first what she was looking at, like a strange, rippling reflection of her own sunburnt face. Shots of pink and red splayed across the shifting surface of the water. She dipped her prune hand in, cupping the shimmering light and lifting it up close to her face. Globules in prismatic shades of sun-kissed rose slid between her fingers, stretching long and thin till they reunited with the lapping waves in a pool much wider than she had first realized. That's when the burning started. Um, what do you think people will hear Jared McCormick when they listen to all episodes of the MFA Writers Podcast available where podcasts are sold? Well, if if they're like me, they'll be surprised at the positivity 
of a lot of these guests towards their programs. I remember when I went into this, when we first started doing it, there was so much hate <laughs> on Twitter and online you or places. <laughs> no, not towards us, but just to like MFA programs in general. And I just didn't know for sure what we would get and like what to expect because there were just all these horror stories floating around about these terrible experiences. And, and then I started interviewing people and just the vast majority of the stories that I've heard have just been really positive from people about their programs. And, you know, I'm not naive. I know that these people are talking in like a public forum. They know these things are going to be put out there and their professors might hear them. Their family might hear them, their friends. So they might be holding a little bit in if they, if maybe there's something they'd like to complain about that they hold in. But I also talk to these people outside the podcast and they have an opportunity to tell me, you know, the negative stuff. And they just don't very often. For the most part, people are really positive about the experiences that they've had. Yeah. And I think one of the main things I hear, one of the most positive things that I hear from people is that they just love the community. They love the other writers that they're working with. I think one of the cool things about the whole MFA thing in general is that it brings a, it brings a bunch of really cool people together with similar interests. And, you know, a lot of people I talk to, they're from around the country. Some of them are from small towns like me where maybe they didn't grow up around people who were writers and readers. And then to have the chance to go to a place where everyone is a writer and reader and everyone's interested in like making their writing better and in the best circumstances, in the best situations, those people are also interested in making your writing better. It can be a really positive experience. Of course, the community aspect is a bit of a crapshoot, right? You don't know what you're going to get when you go to these places. You can choose the schools you apply to. And then if you get accepted to a few, you can choose the school you go to. You can't choose the people the other people that they're accepting, right? You can't choose the people who are in your cohort. So you just don't know until you get there. But the, the overwhelming sentiment that I've heard from people is that they've found their programs and their cohorts really supportive and they've made lifelong friends in this lifelong writing community that they're going to continue to be in touch with beyond the program. And I suppose the obvious question to ask in relation to these two answers then is how have these interviews impacted your work with your program and your community? You know, to be honest, it showed me the things that my program's doing well, but also the things that my program doesn't do very well. <laughs> like what? We'll bleep out key bits too. Yeah, right. <laughs> my program ha has some really incredible professors and great writers who I really admire. It's one of the main reasons I went there. I also went there because they offered me funding, but my program doesn't offer funding to everyone. It's a partially funded program. So mm -hmm. the majority of students in my program are not funded. I wish there was more equity there that it was, and that the people who were funded like myself were getting a, a, a bit better shake with our funding, but that's really more of an, an issue with the administration at my school than like the people in my program specifically. You know, my, my program is part of the University of Missouri, and you might not believe this, Evan, but Missouri is not particularly great with funding the arts. I think that my program's doing the best they can. 
the writer, the the professors there are super talented. They're stretched thin because of just the amount of work that they have on their plate, especially um, with COVID and the you know statewide budget crunch that these universities are dealing with. They do the best they can. In a perfect world, uh, we would all be funded. We'd all be funded better than I am. We'd all have health insurance included in that funding. And these professors who are wonderful writers would have more time to mentor us instead of being stretched them with all these other responsibilities. Is there a good way, in your opinion, to pressure certain groups to encourage them to increase funding to state universities in Missouri? You know, I don't know. I don't know how to put pressure on people within the state government. That's a little beyond my purview, but but I do think that if you're attending an MFA program or any graduate program in which you're working for the university and your school doesn't have a union, you should start working on trying to get a union. Uh, I mean, we had a guest, for instance, Hannah Kahandig taylor from Northern Michigan University. They were, it was a fully funded program, if I'm remembering right, but the funding, the subsidy was like, I want to say like $9,000 a year. You know, it's, it's cheap to live in parts of Northern Michigan, but um, not that cheap, you know. And so they were, they had a big union push there as well, or at least a big advocacy push to try to shore up the funding in that program and provide some extra funding and extra security for those student employees during the pandemic when they were being asked to teach in person um, for parts of it, for instance. I mean, these are the kind of like grassroots student organizations that I think are super important because, you know, I, I can't speak for every program, but in my school, it, it seems like when the cuts have to be made, they're often made to the people at the very bottom, and they're often made to these kind of arts programs. And so the only way to kind of try to fight back against that is to get the rest of these cool people that you know in your MFA program or across the English department and, and, you know, start organizing and and put some pressure on them to change their priorities. You know, for instance, I started to say Wyoming earlier, the reason that popped in my head, because we also had a guest, Dana Liebelson from the University of Wyoming. They had their own budget crunches during COVID, and they actually wanted to completely cut that MFA program. And that's a good MFA program. It has a really good reputation around the country. And they were just going to completely cut it. And so Dana and some other students kind of started a grassroots campaign to save it, and they did. So those are the kind of people who I look to, and those are the kind of situations that I look to for inspiration when trying to advocate for myself and other students at my program, for instance. Given that, how would you encourage people then to become comfortable with the idea of asking for what they're worth? Yeah, um, you're not going to be comfortable, right? (laughs) This is never going to be a comfortable thing. It's never going to be a comfortable thing to go to people with more power than you and say, listen, this is my worth. I know it. And this, and you should do something to provide that worth to me. That's never going to be an easy conversation. But what makes it easier is when you have 10 of your friends or 20 of your friends or 100 of your fellow graduate students who are all standing behind you and that you have that conversation, that kind of community 
it, it's never going to be comfortable but that's when you know like okay i'm on the right side of this i have people behind me i can deal with the discomfort if it means that we might have a better situation after it or it might not be for you you might not get to reap the rewards of this organizing but the people who come after you will and that's just as important i think it should be important for folks to realize and be cognizant of the fact that you know you're not going to get a victory right away yeah and that organizing isn't a campaign organizing is effort over time with checks that you make along the way the measure of success in organizing shouldn't just be am i going to make my lot better it should be something like am i slowly making things better <laughs> am i am i um am i doing the good work basically yeah. and i and i get that it's a hard ask mm. you know i didn't I didn't join my MFA program with the idea that I would spend half my time organizing graduate students. Right. I, I thought that I would be spending my time focused on my writing, my reading, improving. And I, and I do, I, you know, I have non-negotiable writing time every morning, but I'm spending a lot of time doing this other thing that I didn't expect to do, but feels like it has to be done. And so, like you said, it's a slow process of like changing a situation for the better in the long run and hopefully changing the people in power, hopefully changing their perspective and their priorities when they look, when they, when they get that budget cut that comes down from the state level is their first instinct to say, okay, how many graduate student employee positions can we cut? Or is their first instinct, could I possibly live on less than $400,000 a year, $300,000 a year? which is what a lot of administrators are making, even at my small school. I'm glad that we've decided to solve organizing <laughs> today. When you came on my podcast, we completely solved literature. And now uh, I've come on here to talk about MFA programs. And, <laughs> and we're starting a union campaign, it seems. Productivity with Evan and Jerry. <laughs> I, I, I guess to sort of play off that joke for a second, what counts as success or a successful ask if you are in a MFA program and you are organizing your fellow graduate students in the direction of a union? A lot of these MFA programs are funded. That's wonderful. I think, I think it's important to take a moment to realize how kind of amazing that is, that there are all of these writing programs around the country that are providing a space for people to work on their craft while not having to worry about working a job. So that's great. But, you know, the, a lot of times the stipend levels are the bare minimum. They're, they're right at the poverty line. It's like, what's the least amount we can give them without them, you know, completely struggling the whole time, providing no productivity to our university. That's like the baseline. That shouldn't be the baseline. I think, you know, universities can afford to give people a little bit more so that they're actually comfortable instead of straddling the line between poverty and, and safety. And even the programs that, that do fund fully, many of them don't provide health insurance, um, which 
you know, with, with changes to, with the Affordable Care Act, that's less of an issue for a lot of domestic students. But if you're an international student, for instance, you don't have access to the ACA. So you're paying out of pocket $2,500, $3,000 a year for health insurance. And if your stipend is 10, 11, 12,000, suddenly you're being asked to live on less than $10,000 a year. That's a pretty tough ask. And so I think pushing for health insurance is a big one. I think pushing for a minimum stipend that's above the poverty line is not an unreasonable ask. So those are, that, that's the place to start. What are you listening to these days? Oh man, what am I not listening to? When, when you can stream everything, <laughs> how do you choose? Right. I mean, I'm well, bouncing are you, around. Well, are, are you just saying that you're, you're listening, you play like five songs at once, flaming lip style. And, <laughs> and it's kind of just a cross current of noise. Sometimes, uh, over in yeah, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I'm, I hit the shuffle button and uh, I, I wonder why I ever downloaded something when it pops into my ear. But, you know, when I'm writing, I, I mostly listen to instrumental music i'm not listening to anything with lyrics so usually stuff like you know william tyler playing the guitar stuff like that 